Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. My name is Alan. With me, as always, is Gareth. Hello. Hello. And today we're going back, going way back. Way back to black and white. To black and white days. We're going back to LWT's first sort of big sitcom success. Okay. Uh, I don't think it was their first sitcom, but it was it was shortly after LWT, London Weekend Television, began. Right. 1968. The show yep. is, of course, Please Sir. Please Sir! Yes. With an exclamation mark. You know how I love exclamation marks in my uh, television titles. Uh, or any punctuation, really. Just does my editing. Anyway, before we do get into Please Sir, you mentioned LWT. You always send me these clips to watch. And I mm-hmm. assume they're usually from a DVD that you've ripped, but these all had the London Weekend Television ident on them at the start. Yeah. Is that was that on the DVD? Because I've got yeah, to say, I yeah. had a real sense of nostalgia from seeing that little ident. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, that's just on part. It's part of the program. It's just the producers, you know, make at the beginning. Sure, that's, that's yeah, what yeah. you get. Yeah, but yeah, they do a vote, and you get the same with some of the others, uh, Granada and all that. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it, it it takes you back a little bit because <laughs> definitely we don't really have we don't have regions in the same quite in the same way these days. And it was interesting, wasn't it? Like back in back, we used to have the you know the ITV regions. We grew up in Yorkshire and Tyne Tees and all all those sorts of things, and they produced their own television programs, which would go out across the network. So you would see those other logos. But London was interesting, wasn't it? Because it was Thames during the week and LWT. What was it like, Friday yeah. night to Sunday night? How did it work? That's right, yeah. From Friday, oh God, I'm doing this off my head, but like Friday from seven, I think it was, yeah. like after the news, through to Sunday at, you know, same, similar sort of time. But it's the yeah. weekend, London weekend television, because Absolutely. the television at the weekend was a totally different beast to the weekdays. Completely which it still is. It still is. That's true. Lot, That's true. Ways, yeah. Yeah. It is. Uh, listen, I, f- I feel like we've got a little sidetracked early doors here. <laughs> shall we? Uh, yeah, yeah. Shall we get back to the police, sir, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and the actual subject of our podcast? And just just to preempt the the episode that we're going to be looking at in detail is from series two, episode thirteen. It's called Dress Circle. So we will mm. go through that episode in a lot of detail, and we'll do what we usually do. We'll we'll use those the scenes in that episode to jump off and talk about some of the actors and characters and so on. But just yeah. give us a bit of background on police, sir. So. You said 1968. Just give us the, give us the dates. Give us the deets. So series one, uh, first series there, 1968, late 68, November, December. It went out seven okay. episodes, so mm-hmm. pretty standard. Then second series the next year in 13 episodes, mm. followed up with series three a year later, 14 episodes. Okay, that's interesting. So again, we, when we've talked about this before when we when we did the army game recently. Th- there wasn't a standard, was there? You know, it wasn't like six is normal or thirteen is normal. There wasn't a normal, but back then, so they're still trying to establish patterns. Yeah, I think the BBC was definitely more of a of a, a vibe of that six episodes, maybe mm. seven if they've got an extra week to fill. The thing with a thirteen or fourteen episodes is it's a quarterly thing, isn't it? That's yes. it's kind of fitting. Yes. A, a schedule, and so you need you just need four things on rotation to fill your fill your Friday yeah. night slot or whatever it is, and so it, it 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 they do it for that reason really. It's all about that. Although then you have a few weeks off over Christmas because everything just goes haywire and doing sure. different things. But yeah, it's it's seasonal. That those first three series, which were just one year to the next, pretty standard uh, as you mm. think that. That's really what we're going to be looking at as what is Please Sir, but it did go on after that. There was a fourth series Mm. as well. This is interesting. So we've decided, haven't we, for the purposes of this review, that we're going to talk about the first three series as our our canon, Please Sir. Yeah. And you want to treat the fourth series as something different. So after series three, we'll get into this a bit more, but basically the, the children, the school children, they leave the school. Uh, And so for series four, they try and bring in a new, sort of the same staff, but we lose our main teacher, we lose our main pupil. So it becomes a very different beast. We'll talk about that is. But because it's so different, it feels like it's a a sequel of sorts. But then there was an actual sequel called The Fen Street Gang, where we we follow what the students do after they've left school. Which if, so it's almost like it branches into two halves. Literally, one of them is still yeah. called Please Sir, but so yeah. that's the official kind of that's the continuation. But in reality, it's just as cut off from the original three series, as in, mm-hmm. in my opinion. It's like two new species evolving from the first. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we'll <laughs> we'll talk about that. But I think yeah. just to yeah to talk about the the canon, it's the first three series and the film spin off. Yes. 
And the, the episode we're looking at is the last episode of series two. Um, mm-hmm. So really, when it's it's definitely got its footing by then, it knows what it's doing. Uh, so it's a, it's a good example of what the show is. Well, the other thing I wanted to talk about in terms of uh, production notes is that black and white color thing. So the first series was in black and white, but then the second yeah. in color, right? That's right. The first series, yeah. And, and by the time they, they were filming the second series, it actually they went full color about halfway through the series in terms of the network they were. Oh, I see. They were putting out in color, but they filmed them all in color. Because they obviously knew this was coming up, and so they were thinking ahead okay. to, when we repeat this, we, we're going to have okay. them in colour. So that's interesting. So the first few episodes would have gone out black and white, even though they were filmed in colour. Of series oh, two, yes. And then, and then just as while you're on that topic, uh, the end of series three are in black and white, the last four episodes. That was because the, of the colour strike um, at ITV, which oh, affected course, yeah. all the shows at the time. So just a, just a little uh, footnote of history. Then. Well, okay, so... That's a nice bit of background. Let's set up the series itself. So it's a school. It's a school in London, and we have a class, 5C, who are... It's set up in the first episode that they're the class that no one wants to teach. Their form teacher has gone off sick. And the new teacher, played by John Alderton, Mr. Hedges, gets gets kind of lumbered with this class. That's the that's how this, it's all set up. And, and I guess the three series... I'm not sure about timelines, but is that supposed to be three terms of their last year? Is that how it's that's set it, up? Or yeah, is it... that's, that's, that, no, that is correct, yeah. Okay. Uh, we, and, and a very definite kind of, the end of the series is like, oh, it's the end of the term, we're coming back uh-huh. next time. So actually, I think, I think that's quite neat, actually. It works out nicely. Yeah, it does. It does. So let's talk about the massive problem, the, the elephant in the room, is that all the actors who play these kids, they're all well into their 20s, even at the start, aren't they? They're all way too old. <laughs> yes. <laughs> are, they, are they supposed to be 16 or 18? They're 15, really, at the start of the year. They're going to be 16 by the time they leave. So in theory, they're 15. Listen, we've got six main, I'm going to say child characters, even though they're not child actors. Without just getting into too much detail about the individuals, can you just reel off for me those their ages at the start of this, if they're all supposed to be 15? <laughs> well, the youngest one was Malcolm McPhee, who would have been 19. Right. Uh, the oldest is actually David Barry, who would have been 25. Wow, 25. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, they're obviously all older than 16. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's a big that's a big jump, isn't it? And then part of the problem is as well, you know, it's obviously very standard to have adults playing teenagers in these shows. But you tend to find teen, uh, adults who look younger than they are. Whereas you've got Peter <laughs> Cleal, who plays Duffy. He would have been 24 when the show started. And he looks 35 then. Peter Cleal <laughs> looks like... i tell you what I kept thinking. Peter Cleal looks like a first division footballer of the time. <laughs> he looks like he looks like he was left back for Ipswich Town. And he would have broken your legs as soon as you look at you. But if you, if you go back and look at all those... Like, if you look at old football stickers from the 70s and 80s... All of those lads look in their 50s, even though they're only 20. And that's Peter yeah. Cleal's problem. He's, he's playing 15, he's 24, and he looks 39. <laughs> and a hard life, 39 as well. Yeah. Yes, he looks like he's been working in a factory for 20 years. <laughs> so look, we're gonna, we're, I dare say we're going to talk about this a lot because it, 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 it has a tendency to take you out of the, um, out of the drama from time to time. But I, I suppose you just have to suspend your disbelief a little bit, don't you? Do you know what? I actually, I've been thinking about this because, it, and, and from what I understand, it was noticed at the time. It was like, even when the mm. show was out, it was like, was the thing people always said about it. And, and yeah, I, I was just saying, like, well, it's just one of those things, but the more and more I think about it, I think it actually does affect the show and how we watch it. So I mm. might, I might talk a bit more about that later. But we we'll come back. I, to that, I do definitely. think it's an issue. Yes. They're not like kids at all. They're so hard bitten. Mutations. That's what they are, boy. Little pubescent bodies in the minds of hardened old lags. John Alderton, who play, who's playing the teacher, is only a few years older than them. Well, I suppose that's... But that is realistic, because if you think about this, he's, a, he's on his first day as a, as a teacher. He's an idealistic young teacher. So, you know, how old would he be, realistically? He'd probably be tw- 23 or 24. I, I think John Alderton's too old to be playing that role as well. Yeah. 
yeah, and and the, the whole setup is he yeah he's new, and so he's got this ideological. Ide- he's deliberately gone to a crappy little comprehensive in the East End of London mm-hmm. because that's where that he can do the most good. And so when he gets dumped with the you know the degenerate class, he embraces it. Yeah, and you know let's face it, over the course of the series, has a very profound impact. He does a on great job, and, and does a really good job. I, I think it's great. I, I really do. You know, we can perhaps come to this in our conclusions, but I think it's it's quite heartwarming, really, the way he, the way he. He charms them and he he helps them, he educates them. Mm. Yes, because the other half of the show really is the staff side of the school, and mm-hmm. they are all just cynical, weak dysfunctional children. And that's pretty squalid, <laughs> yeah. the staff room, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is yeah. probably quite realistic, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well we'll, well, we'll get into this in more detail as we go through the episode. Uh, what I'd like to do is start with the theme tune. <laughs> I think it's perfect. It's got the school bell kind of yeah. motif running through it. But yeah, it's great. Like the we talk about the opening titles. It's like a sort of 30 second long, quite long opening titles. And we also all the kids in the playground. There's a sort of anarchic feel to what's going on. They're all sort of running around playing football, getting kicked around, gets kicked at hedges. Then it gets kicked at Potter. And we, you know, we, we are introduced to our actors in that way. Uh, but it's a great setup. The music is great. And we just sort of see this school-based chaos. Interesting, though, that just as we start, though, those titles, I have a little um, story about that. And yeah. now's a good time to introduce um, a, a book that I've read. <laughs> which, a book what you read? A book what I read called... Um, Please, sir, the official history. It seemed uh, the logical thing oh, yeah. to read. Right? I'm looking forward to hearing about this, yeah. So this is a book written by David Barry, who is the actor who plays Frankie Abbott in Please, Sir. And mm-hmm. he, a few years ago, he took it upon himself to write a kind of potted history of the of Please, Sir. Now, I will say, Please, Sir, the official history is a bit of a misleading title. This is very much David Barry's professional memoirs. It's him talking about his working life. Okay. Please, Sir is obviously a very big chunk of that. But okay. having said that... Really great book, actually. I do recommend it. I'm going to be dropping out a few facts from this that I've read and I've made a few okay. notes. So I just want to credit that for a start. But also, I do recommend it if you're in- if anyone who's interested in this show, particularly, but in general sitcom history, because it, you know, it, it, basically a guy who was working in this industry throughout the '70s, particularly, and, and what do these guys do when the TV series finishes and the you know the work isn't flooding in like what are they doing it's it's an interesting mm-hmm. account of a, of a an actor in the 70s and is it available how could how could our listeners buy it yeah um good question because it, i mean if you google it you'll find people selling it but um i think he may have his own website where you can buy it you know so it's it's out there you know if you google it you'll you'll find somewhere selling it but i happened to buy mine um from david barry himself and he signed it for me i i, I met him at a, an event i went to recently where a load of sitcom stars were just yep. chatting about their their time uh, organized so that's the way we spend our weekends <laughs> yeah exactly uh, yeah one of the events organized by robert ross who seems to be the man who does all that stuff in the world of sitcoms and carry on uh, but yeah, I went to that quite recently, which I may tell you a bit more about that as we go along, because there's some interesting things. In fact, shall I just shall we just have a little sidebar and I'll tell let's you about that? Let, let's do this. Let's do it. Let's let's give David a, a really big plug for his book. See if we can boost his sales. <laughs> so yeah, I went to this event, which was called Sitcom Legends, I think it was, in Watford. And uh, basically it was, uh, uh, you know, a whole day, but... Robert Ross uh, interviewing, kind of interviewing, but just having a bit of a chat with some sitcom stars, really. Some anecdotes. Yeah, just allowing them uh, an opportunity to tell some anecdotes. Jeffrey Holland was there. He's always there. Jeffrey Holland's always um, good for an anecdote. And and David Barry and Penny Spencer, who plays Sharon in Police, Mm -hmm. uh, were both there as well. The the other biggest name who was there was Brian Murphy, who, of course, is George Roper, George and Mildred. Yeah. Who is 90 years old now. Uh, mm. And he was uh, fit as a fiddle. Well, he's fit as a sort of ninety-year-old fiddle, but you know he was <laughs> seemed to be doing well. He's, in good form. Yeah, very cracking. A lot of jokes. Really funny. I recently saw Brian Murphy. I was watching Mrs. Merton and Malcolm, and and he's playing right. you know an old man in that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I realised this is twenty-five years ago. And he's he's still kicking. He's still going strong. Good lad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Brian Murphy is married to Linda Regan, 
who uh-huh. we talked about last week. In uh, Heidi High. she was in Heidi High. And Linda Regan has a connection to Police uh, kind Does of she... as well, which I'll come to that later, though. Well, that's just oh, a little sneak peek. Oh, now you've intrigued connected. me. In a, in a very vague, well, a sort of tangential connection right. to uh, David Barry and uh, Frankie Abbott. So the day was very interesting. We sort of heard all these stories and David Barry was there and signing copies of his book. Not just this one. He also writes novels. I'll talk to you a bit about that later when we go through some of the actors. Uh, But yeah, he signed it for me and I have read it. And now I'm going to uh, just <laughs> impart some of the some of the interesting little tidbits that are very specific to please, sir. But there's l- lots more in this book. So uh, well, we, can we, I? We'll not talk about this on the podcast. But you sent me um, some absolutely thermonuclear gossip about Rodney Bewes. Let's just leave that. <laughs> Our listeners will have to buy the book if they want to uh, if they want to read that. I will say what I do. I, like I said, I did, I did really enjoy reading this. Actually, I whipped through it pretty quickly and. Here's two points, right? David Barry is not afraid to uh, slag a couple of people off. Um, I appreciate yep. that because I like I like getting the nitty gritty. I don't yeah. <laughs> I don't just want to hear all the the like David Jason isn't going to slag anyone off in his autobiography, right? No, so <laughs> way too, <laughs> nice. he's too. He's still too. I think he's just too he's much too to lose. To the industry. Alan, too, too much, much to lose. To lose. Yeah. But also, here's here's the major thing I took from reading this book. Right, everyone in the entertainment industry in the seventies was an alcoholic. Mm. Every anecdote is, oh, and so-and-so was, um, was we, we, we had trouble because he couldn't remember his lines because he was drunk. So-and-so would get drunk, but never so drunk before a show that he couldn't <laughs> perform. Every single anecdote is it's someone so old, was an alcoholic. So many of them died young, didn't they? Like, you know, you, you always, I remember in the 80s, you know, it'd be on the news, so-and-so has died. Tommy Cooper has died. Mm-hmm. I don't know how old yeah. Tommy Cooper was, but he was not an old man. You know, like all those entertainers and comedians, and they, they lived hard, didn't they? Well, one of the specific stories in this book uh, mentions James Beck, who makes a guest appearance in an episode mm-hmm. of The Fen Street Good Gang example. when he was in his dad's army fame. And uh, David Barry says they got on quite well, and he bumped into him again six weeks later and went, oh, hi, James, and, the, and didn't know who he was. Wow. Uh, so, And then, you know, James Beck was dead pretty shortly after that. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah. The cur- but is just, it the curse uh, of The Fen Street Gang? <laughs> no, it's the curse of being an alcoholic. <laughs> but the, it does just seem to be ingrained into the actor's world. You know, especially in the theatre world, you go and do a show, you get out at 10 o'clock. You're working you late hours, yeah. Yeah, and you don't have to get up in the morning, so... Yeah, the, interesting. The, he, he also tells an anecdote about a specific theatre that had a little ladder in the back, in the wings, where you could go up, open a trapdoor, and it got you up into the bar of the dress <laughs> circle. So during the show, you didn't have to go out you could stay backstage and get a drink. Excellent. So, do you think that's changed now? If you went, if you were at a, you know, a West End production now, are they all going out for kombuchas afterwards? Well, I, don't, I don't even know what kombucha is. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's definitely changed to an extent. But I, I I will say that you know when we see we've seen shows and we go, this is a bit sloppy. It's not put together that well. This is part of it. Not that they were drunk doing it necessarily, yeah. although some of them were. But yeah. there is a. There seems to be not a lack of professionalism exactly, but an ability to get away with not being professional by yeah. by a, a, enough people that it's affecting the. the I think product. there's also an element like I've watched. You know, in the last couple of weeks, I've watched not as many episodes of this as you, but probably I don't know ten or twelve. And there's a lot of like seeing the boom mic or someone walking in front yeah. of camera, and yeah, you, know, you kind of see those errors. Now we've talked about this before. This would have gone out once maybe maybe been repeated once but it wasn't people watching people can rewind and say did i just see a boom mic then you know so you could get away with more that i think that is factually accurate yeah and here's here's another thing and and this comes up in david barry's book as well he talks about the the producer director mark stewart who did most of the first second series and was involved in the producer uh if not director of throughout the entire run including fen street gang Mm. all this right and had a very expansive career, Mark Stewart. And and just, you know, David Barry is not particularly pleasant about him in the book, but is sort of, doesn't really slag him off either. But my read of it was, this guy's a total dick. Really? Like he was, he has an extremely short fuse, would shout at people, would just insult them to their face. And hmm. his main focus, and I'm sort of reading within the lines here, but his main focus was, let's get this done, get out, get, get to, to the, the pub. And like, get on with our lives because I don't care. There's no kind of artistic integrity involved. They just want to, I'm here to do a job. You yeah. stand there, move over to that bit, say these words, and then I'll put a point of camera at you. Yeah, I, I suppose there's no, Esmond and Larby write the scripts. All the actors are there mm-hmm. to perform. He's just creating a product, isn't he? 
and he was not interested. If you if you flubbed a line, then you flubbed a line, mate. That's on you. I'm not doing another take. Yeah. So you know that's why you get those elements. You get the boom micing shot and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. So I'll drop a few more facts on you um, that I've got mm. specifically from David Barry's book. Um, but yeah, I think it was a really good read. So I do recommend it. Shall we move on to our episode then? So we've had, we've talked yeah. about the opening titles. And scene one opens up in the classroom. We have a few sets, the classroom and the staff room being the primary ones. Yeah. Uh, there's also a lot of corridor action. Uh, and we yeah. have a few outside broadcasts. But, but for now, we start in the classroom. It, there's chaos. There's no teacher in the room. And the kids are they're playing table tennis with with books, which I like. That's very creative. Mm. And we, we sort of get a little a, a brief introduction to our our main child characters. So there's a whole class of kids. There's a there's a big room full of extras. Interestingly, all the extras also look in their twenties. Like they couldn't have just got sixteen year olds in as <laughs> as extras because that would have made the main cast look even more ridiculous. So shall we just talk a little bit about our our six main kids? Four boys, yeah. two girls. Yeah, uh, which is interesting dynamic. I feel sure that nowadays you would have three boys and three girls in that situation. Maybe, yeah, maybe. So yeah, t- 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 let's go through them one by one and just give a brief pencil sketch. Yeah, go on then. Let's start with the leader, the de facto leader, Duffy. Duffy is sort of literally front and centre. He sits at the front desk, and this is uh, Peter Cleal. And as we've already discussed, he looked forty, uh, but he's a geezer, <laughs> isn't he? I mean, he's like he's loud and he's obnoxious. Like I don't think he delivers a line at, at less than eleven out of ten in the whole series. <laughs> it's best whenever he does the line. Well, what are we supposed to do? We're just little kiddies, ain't we? <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> but he is the leader, isn't he? He's the ringleader. He's the, the the other characters sometimes literally look to him for guidance in terms of what they should mm. be doing. But a benevolent leader. Mm. He's not a bully. Well, I wanted to bring this up in this scene particularly because another kid walks from one of the other classes, 5A, yeah, who's like yeah. the, the, the smart kid, walks in and just immediately there is like slurs <laughs> pelted at him just because yeah. he's not not one of them and then whenever he talks they mock him just because he doesn't talk with a, a common accent like, ve- like i will say this do. so 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 <laughs> yeah the reason it's, it's a nice contrast and it's as you say it's a nice way of demonstrating that it's us against the rest of the school cheer one puffy all right duffy uh yes farmer what is it please sir mr wyatt says have you got the tickets for 5a please sir mr wyatt says all right shut up but I will say this, the, the kid who comes in, he's, he's way, it's way too big a contrast. Like, how yeah. is that kid in that school? He's like, <laughs> he should be at Eton or, or Wickham or something. Do you know what I mean? It's interesting because we have a, there's a similar thing happens in the film where they, they kind of get into a, a competitive nature with this other school and they're the posh kids, right? Mm. But what I find interesting about that and what really jumped out to me about this scene is that we don't particularly often see them outside of their own little bubble. No. And even if they do, uh, if we see them going up against some of the kids, it's usually a relatively fair kind of like, we're going at each other kind of thing. Whereas this, this kid walks in and it's bullying, it's bullying. And that is significant because, like I say, Duffy is not a bully and often is the voice of moral good. Mm-hmm. You know, he will often kind of be the ringleader who says, oh, look, do you know what? We have done, we've done wrong by the teacher and we're going to make it up to him. Yeah. For what he uh, appears to be, he's not aggressive. He's ready to fight if he needs yeah. to, yeah. but he's not an aggressive person. He's not looking for a fight. And I, I didn't particularly like this scene because of how they come across, which yeah, I get is not how we usually see them. I agree. I think I think Duffy is fundamentally a good man, isn't he? <laughs> man, good boy. <laughs> right. Uh, who else have we got here then? Well, let's let's talk about the boys first. So we have Frankie okay. Abbott, who is a little bit of a fantasist. I really don't like Frankie Abbott. In contrast, Frankie Abbott seems like a nasty piece of work, really. You know, he makes stories up, he invents things, and he's also got really nasty. Like, so for example, when this kid leaves the this other kid leaves the room, he says, oh, "I'd stick his foot in a bath of acid if I had my way." I'm like, Jesus, Frankie, calm down. Yeah. <laughs> Bath of acid? Where's that coming from? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. He is a fantasist, and that's why you kind of get away with all that stuff. He says some really quite horrific things. He's going to set his mum's hair on fire and stuff like that. But yeah. you know he's never going to do any of it, and I guess that's why we can mm-hmm. get away with that. And it's interesting, like like we were saying about the kids being too old, the, the actors being too old. They also yeah. act 
too old. They don't act like 15, 16 year olds very often. Mm. And Frankie Abbott is kind of the opposite of that because he He's acts like an eight year old. Um, <laughs> but it is called out that that is his character. He's childish. He's a mummy's boy and a fantasist. Mm. And, you know, that's that's what he's got going on. But let's compare and contrast that to, say, Jay from The Inbetweeners, who is now the kind of that's classic really example good. of a, of I, a fantasist. I was going to bring up The Inbetweeners later, actually. That is the best <laughs> yeah. comparison of them all. Yeah. This feels like, oh, this, this guy is just like an eight-year-old child who's being petulant and making up stories whereas jay feels like a 16 year old who's making up stories and it is a different thing we sort of said when we did the in-betweeners that you know jay for them in the main doesn't get called out people they just roll their eyes and let him get on with it and that's exactly the same with frankie here nobody ever says ah come on you're making that up frankie even though they all know he is they just let him get on with it (laughs) But he never makes up anything with any consequence at all. It's like, no. No. He's, it's always just like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a spy. <laughs> I work for the CIA. You don't know about it. <laughs> He's gone big, hasn't he? It's just completely <laughs> nonsense. Well, one of the other boys is Peter Craven, played by Malcolm mm-hmm. McPhee. Now, I'm yeah. going to be honest with you up front here. I really like Craven. I think he's yeah. great. Firstly, I love his style. He's dapper right. Dan, and he looks great. And that's that's his yeah. character. You know, he's a bit of a ladies' yeah, man. That really comes but to unlike, the unlike unlike Frankie, he really is a ladies' man. Um, <laughs> which, you know, again, we can talk about the appropriateness of that for 15-year-olds, and we'll, we'll probably get to that with the girls. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I really like Craven. He's kind of uh, a bit of a geezer, but yeah, he knows what's going on. Peter Craven, yeah, played by Malcolm McPhee. I feel he's the most underserved character in these uh, principal I, I, six kids. He left me wanting more. I always wanted to see more of him, yeah. And I think that might be because he's not the biggest character, like someone like Frank Yabbert. There's It's just something more obvious about it where i think what he's doing is a bit more subtle dare i say yeah i i think he develops a lot more in the fen street gang actually because we see mm-hmm. him go off and he starts working for a gangster basically so oh, so we, right, we okay. sort of start to get and we we certainly see more of his ladies man side because he's actually yeah. i think they have a bit more freedom to actually get him hooking up with women so the fourth of our boys is Dennis Dunstable, played by our favourite Peter Denyer from Dear John. <laughs> Certainly wasn't our favourite from Dear John, I should no, say. No, no. <laughs> but, but in Dear John, he plays Ralph, who's obviously this sort of nerd character, bit of an idiot. But mm. in, in Dennis Dunstable, and I'm going to be a little bit careful here, are, are we talking about a bit of an idiot or are we someone with learning difficulties? Where, where, where are we? You don't have a go at Dunstable, sir. He's ESN. And... <laughs> and, and what do you understand ESN to mean? Same as you. He's educationally subnormal, isn't he? <laughs> He's a bit funny. <laughs> Not me. Dennis is is and is very much positioned as a kid with special needs and in a school system that is not set up to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Of all the characters, this is one of the most interesting. I'm not sure we ever dig into it enough for me, for my taste, because not only does he have special needs and so he is academically, you know, very foolish. They play on that for laughs sometimes, but this is the difference. Whereas Frankie Abbott, his stupidity is funny. I don't think they really play for that with Dennis. He says some silly things and, and his friend and the people around him are extremely supportive of him. Yes, and that's the thing about we were talking about bullying. He would be a target for bullying, You one would think. But he's not. He's very much part of the group. He's looked after. Maureen has always got the metaphorical arm around him and looking after him. It's, you know, he's, he's part of the group very much. The other aspect, and I find this a fascinating character, the other aspect of his character is he's, he is poor. And I mean, all these kids are working mm. class, like not well-off kids, but he yeah, is in extreme in poverty. Yeah, and again, something that could easily be bullied for in in a, a school, but they very much they rally around to to look after him. Yeah, and another aspect is his father is a deadbeat alcoholic who beats him and his mother, and that is referenced yep. you know, That's quite explicitly a lot. Referenced. Um, and there is a little bit uh, as the character develops of him finally fighting back and standing up to him. And there's a, there's a bit of resolution to that. But it, mm. it's it's really interesting that this was just positioned as well. This is you know some kids live like this, and this is one of the characters that we're having. It's not dropped in as an episode. The teacher finds out and is like, "Oh, I'm going to go in and save the day." No, this is this is life. This is not going to change. It's not going yeah. to be. He's not going to be saved. Uh, but I think that would have been relatable in, in 1970. You know, I think oh, yeah. that's. I think everybody would have known a kid like that at school. You know. The characters are all, and this goes for the whole thing, they're very one-dimensional. You're the tough one, you're the stupid one, you're the pretty one kind of vibe. It feels like that's the synopsis you wrote on the back of a napkin when you were coming up with the idea, and it never developed beyond that. And then obviously it does a little bit as they go along. 
I think the Fen Street gang benefits from that development. We'll talk about that later. But yeah, I, 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 then when you've got the staff side as well, it's just there's way too many things going on uh, for, the, for the show to deal with. Let's talk about our last two students. The Let's talk about the, the girls, ladies. yeah. So firstly, we have Penny Spencer as Sharon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would characterize Sharon as, uh, I'm going to use the euphemism, worldly wise. <laughs> She's streetwise. Well, it feels like Sharon has written as like, she's the pretty one. Everyone's trying to get off with her and she's dating older men. And she's, Mm. she specifically is like, she's seen some guy and he thinks she's a air hostess. And she's like, Oh God, she can't find out I'm a schoolgirl. You know, like that, obviously that (laughs) would ruin it. So I I think, I think we now have to address this, 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 this sexual, like we get away with this because the actors are all in their twenties. But yeah. this whole show, a massive part of the premise here is the sexualization of children. There is no way this show would be made in this way now. Well, um, the in-betweeners, they're sexualized in the way that 16-year-olds are. They're desperately trying to have sex and w- with people their own age and are being very unsuccessful. What we have yeah. here is children flirting with adults, flirting with teachers, behaving in an adult sexualized way. It's very different. Well, I'll tell you about Sharon specifically, because as her character goes along, in the Fen Street gang, spoiler alert, her Mm -hmm. and Duffy end up together as a couple, and there is very much an insinuation... On, like we see them getting married and then like yeah. on their wedding night they're like oh god first time ever ooh, it's like we're gonna do it the idea and both for her and duffy is that they've never had sex before okay and for all the that sharon is like the sexy one and that is kind of how she's positioned she rebuffs all these advances and she's she's a good go uh right yeah. so in terms of the show sexualizing them uh or her specifically it's usually, usually the other teen boys going, oh yeah, she's a bit more right. Yeah, yeah, she's mm. all right. Well, let me, let me talk about, if I can jump out of this episode for a moment and talk about the very mm-hmm. first episode. Yeah. In, in fact, the very first scene, which is on a school bus. So we see all the kids on a bus on their way to school and Mr. Hedges arrives. He's on the same bus. He's going to the same school, but they don't know him. And so there's, you know, there's a little bit of interaction, which becomes embarrassing later. But one of the very first scenes, Hedges drops something, leans down and we get a sort of leery look at Sharon's legs. And then she sort of pulls this coquettish face at him. Ooh, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. It's all, it's all incredibly sexualized. Now I played this to um, my partner who is a teacher of secondary school children. And she, just mm-hmm. like red flag red flag call social services like, <laughs> so, so basically what, what, what she's saying is that when you have a teenager who is ex- exhibiting that kind of overt sexual behavior that's basically a flag that they have had an a, a sexual relationship with an adult who knows more about it than they do now mm. Things might have been different in 1970, I'm sure. But several times this made me feel uncomfortable. Again, we get away with it because the actress is 23. But if she's 15, this is not appropriate. Yeah, and, and in that, that's just use that scene as a, a, a specific example in the opening scene. You know, he doesn't know she's a schoolgirl. She's just a woman on a bus. Sure. So if she looks 23, you know. Also, uh, uh, the idea of a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old having sexual interests and, and mm. have a, giving the eye to some handsome man on the bus uh, is not particularly overt sexual uh, behavior. It feel, that feels like that would be yeah. fairly normal. But also, this is a time where these people, and indeed we see it, you know, they get married in the Fen Street gang. Like, you're married, you've got your first kid by 19. Sure. Um, it's, it's, it's a different not, time. That's what <laughs> we're saying. It's a different time. time. I think, having watched the whole thing, I think for the most part, there's nothing too kind of like, oh my God, I can't believe they're doing that. The thing is, it, it, it genuinely is a different time. I am saying I feel a little uncomfortable, and I do. But if we talk about the fictional character of Sharon, it's perfectly plausible that once she has her 16th birthday, she could get married. She could get married before she leaves school. She could be on page three of The Sun with a top off. Yeah. Like 16 yeah. is 16, that's fine. That was the, that was the uh, culture then. And, and like I say, there is a there is a sense later on that she is chaste uh, in in her morals because she she Listen, had, I'm not, she I'm certainly not had the opportunity. Sharon. No, no, but she certainly had the opportunity, obviously, to to have a bit of shenanigans if she wants. I found that a lot more unrealistic. This concept that her mm. and um, Duffy had never <laughs> conjugated by the time they get married. Like, yeah, like no chance. Come yeah. on. Yeah, that does sound unlikely. But we even see at the at the later end of Please Sir, Sir himself, John Alderton, 
playing uh-huh. uh, Bernard Hedges gets married. And there is yeah. very much an insinuation that he and his wife on their wedding night have never uh, done the one, do yeah. before. And, and there's a whole kind of build up to that where they've bought their flat and they're decorating it and they've got a bed in there, but they're not living there yet because they're not That's married. That's a hell of a gamble, isn't it? <laughs> like, can you imagine? Like, I know that was, that was perhaps the norm. I'm not sure that it was the norm, but it was no, what everybody said was the norm. But you know, what if <laughs> you buy a flat and you buy the furniture and you get married and it's like, oh, this isn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. I genuinely think that, you know, if you look back at 1960 or if you look back at 1360, I don't think it's true that people got married before they had sex. I think that's just what the church said and wrote down. Let's uh, transition that into Maureen, the other female character. So Maureen, yes, is the other girl. And she, her character is best summed up by the fact that she has a crush on Mr. Hedges throughout. You know, she's, she's really got the hots for him. But I think Mm. this is, this is all right. This is a teenager having a crush on a slightly yeah. older adult man and it, yeah. it, it's not inappropriate it, i mean it is inappropriate but it but it's realistic yeah yeah the only thing that comes across inappropriate and again it's it's really mild is is some of the things he does not to encourage mm. it, he certainly doesn't encourage it but he doesn't kind of shut it down immediately which i think you would yes which you absolutely days. would yes uh, but you know i think that is just slightly different i think that the main difference is that sharon looks a certain way and is treated a certain way by men and yeah. has, at an early age, learned how to use that and how to control that. Has had to. Has had that. Yes. She has to. Be, otherwise, she would be taken advantage of. And I think the idea is that Maureen is a little bit more innocent. And she is she is a hardened Catholic. And she she talks mm-hmm. about this a lot. One point, she tries to become a nun. Yeah, her, her little um, lo- lust, shall we say, but love for Sir is her one little kind of vice that she allows yeah. herself. So there are, there are, that's our class. That's our, mm-hmm. as I say, we've got a bunch of extras behind them, but there are kids. There are, they're 5C. Yeah. Let's return to the plot and finish that scene. So we talked about the posh kid coming in and the reason mm. that he's come in is to get the theatre tickets from Mr. Hedges. And this prompts a little bit of, uh, oh, how come we haven't got any tickets? Yeah. And he basically plays them. He does a bit of reverse psychology on them. Didn't think you'd want to go. Yeah, we definitely do. And he gets them all to the theatre. What I really like about that is he pulls out the tickets and says oh I just happen to have another 35 here he's played them they know he's played them but everyone's kind of alright with it yeah and, th- and like I say this is the end of series 2 so we've established this rapport between them now whereas you know in the early series he has to kind of win them over and there's a bit more of a battle to it okay so our next scene we cut to outside the school and uh, presumably the next morning and it's Sharon and Maureen they have a little chat and then they take their coats off to reveal they're both wearing these uh, I'm going to use the word risque dresses mm. What happens next is the first of several funny reaction shots as the the male adult members of the cast see Sharon and Maureen and do this classic double take. The first one is Miss Ewell, the deputy head, who is driving a car and does a big double take and then almost crashes the car into Potter, who's on his bike. And do you remember when we watched Roll Over Beethoven and we saw the worst bicycle crash ever? <laughs> yeah. I think this might be the second worst as Potter I did make a note of this. quotes crashes into this car. And also a, a real bit of business that he basically just has to throw the bike on the ground because it yeah. comes about a foot away from him. <laughs> yeah, he's nowhere near. <laughs> Which is fine. You know, they don't want someone to get knocked off their bike. But yeah. Yeah, you can't have it both ways. Uh, Potter's furious, but because the head is in the car, he's obsequious about it. See, that, that's yeah. the way he, the way he works. And, and then to, to finish this scene, Potter now sees the girls in their dress, does a big old double take, and accidentally reverses over his own bike. So yeah. you know that's the sort of cartoonish scene. But before yes. we move on, shall we talk a little bit about some of the characters we just met? I think Potter, first of all, he's he's the sort of antagonist to Hedges, isn't he? Potter is a big character, played by Derek Geiler. He's the school caretaker. He is the school caretaker, but uh, with with that kind of little Napoleon complex, mm-hmm. he, he runs the place and will let you yeah. know it. He yeah. used to be a desert rat, uh, so he's got a sort and of will let you know it. bearing. Yes, that really reminded me of uh, Dinner Ladies. Uh, yes, with our, with our um, yeah, fastidious janitor. But obviously, time had passed, so it had to be his dad who was a desert rat. <laughs> yeah, but you could. I, I think Duncan Preston in Dinner Ladies could. We met his dad, didn't we? He was played by yes. um, Eric Sykes. Eric Sykes. Eric. That that could be Potter. That could be Potter yeah. in yeah, his retirement. Yeah. Well, Derek Geiler went on to be in Sykes, uh, Eric Sykes' sitcom, Did he? Uh, right, as a regular character. Yeah, one of his main Amazing. main roles there. So there's certainly uh, connections there. I don't, it's probably not a coincidence um, when Victoria Wood was writing that character. Wood that's probably a doing. little uh, connection there. Uh, but yeah, yeah but uh, perhaps typical of a, of a, this kind of 20 years after the war, 
these people mm. who were sort of still living on um, on those glory days uh, yeah. and putting down the people who didn't go and you oh you just did your national service oh well yeah that's all good well yeah. good but yeah uh, so you can look down on the younger generation as we all like to do the thing is when we first meet Potter in the very first episode basically he and Hedge just have a run in and Hedge just you know sort of says oh, I'm a teacher who the hell do you think you are you this caretaker and all <laughs> the other teachers go oh my goodness you're not falling out with Potter he's going to make your life hell that, that that sort of sets up Potter as he really runs the school but I don't think that's how it plays out he wants to be that little Napoleon but actually he's a bit hapless and he keeps you know he's the butt of everyone's jokes and he doesn't have the respect of the head teacher who he he desperately wants to respect him but my main problem with the character of Potter it's this very big comedy performance and Mm -hmm. I think it's a very good comedy performance I think Derek Tyler does a good job but it's completely different to the tone of the rest of the show. I think he is in a different show. Interesting. He's doing full-on slapstick clown stuff. Big comic reactions. And yeah. doing it exactly how you would want that to be done. It doesn't fit in with the rest of the show, which is, for the most part, fairly grounded in reality. Yeah, I, I, I kind of hear what you're saying. For me, the, the, the problem wasn't that it was too big, although it was. The problem was that his impact on the other characters just seemed too varied. As I say, there, there was this sense initially that, oh, it's Potter, he, he really, you know, you need to be afraid of him. But no one's, no one's afraid of him. They, they sort of treat him as a bit of a joke mm-hmm. figure. He makes their life a bit yeah. difficult, you know, by not, not nailing the blackboard back up to the wall quick enough. But yeah, he's, yeah. he's almost insignificant. He, uh, yeah, I suppose he's the comic relief, is what you're saying. It put me in mind of the army game when we watched that. Mm. Um, he is the eye-twitching, cartoonish buffoon that is Snudge. Yeah. Whereas, was this written as a William Hartnell Bullimore character? Uh, the, uh-huh. the actually bit more of an authoritarian and a bit more of a real threat? Yes. But then, just like the army game found out, this is funnier. So let's do it this way. Perhaps it wasn't written that way in the first place. But the problem is that the the privates in the army game, he's in charge of them. Whereas the teachers are just like, well, we don't care about you. (laughs) You know, we're not, Mm. you're not in charge. You're just a, a joke figure who wants to be in charge. The dynamic's very different. Yeah. One of the big character trait he has is his malapropisms. I always enjoy a malaprop. Well, there's a lot of this. It's such a staple of comedy, isn't it? People just, mm-hmm. especially people who are trying to put on a bit of airs and graces and sound yeah, more trying to be somewhat what they're not. Bigger words, yeah. We've seen the snudge does it, but we. It reminded me of like Del Boy, you know, speaking French. Yep. It's the same principle, yes. isn't it? You know, it's just do, those yeah. kind of those mangled phrases. Uh, and so Potter, like you say, is very obsequious towards the headmaster, and that's mm-hmm. how he keeps his bit of power because the headmaster gives it to him. But the headmaster has no respect for him, as we'll discover later on in this episode. You know, he treats him as a a, a tool to be deployed. Mm. But but generally speaking, the headmaster is he's a very weak figure, isn't he? He's very um he'll, he'll do anything for an easy life. He doesn't like any confrontation. Yes. My least favorite part of the show, I will say. Mm. The 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 original dynamic that's set up is that this headmaster is just this weak, not weak-willed figure because he makes the decisions and then other people have to kind of make it work around him. It's not that he's easily taken advantage of. He set up the the deputy head, Joan Sanderson, playing Miss Yule. Yeah. She's the real kind of the one who's actually running the place. And he's as a sort of puppet of power. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Potter finagling him as well to just pass off a little bit of power for himself in what little way he can. Yeah. But, you know, ultimately they have to answer to the headmaster. There's there's a, there's a an episode that deals with the, the idea of sex education within the school and how okay. Hedges thinks what they're doing is ridiculous and they're not setting these kids up. They're teaching up them about rabbits, kind of aren't they? Yeah. yeah. And it's the headmaster in his kind of old-fashioned ways who's going, we're not teaching that. Hedges stands up to him and he's going to get suspended for it. But the turning point is that Miss Ewell goes, no, actually, I agree with Hedges. And so, like, once that happens, the headmaster's just like, oh, well, okay, do what you want. Mm. It's Miss Yule that has his power. And that develops later on in the series because, as it's originally set up, she, for some reason, has a kind of silly schoolgirl crush on the headmaster and is constantly vying yeah. for his attention, and which is why she does everything for him. And he uses that to his advantage. Mm-hmm. So later on, she basically meets another man and that becomes a long-running plot that she's with someone else. And so suddenly she's not yeah. so obsequious to the headmaster. And so that becomes a whole thing later on, which is a little bit of character development or something. Interesting. Well, yeah, obviously, Dor- Miss, Miss Ewell is the power behind the throne. She's the one who's really running things, and everybody knows it. Do you think there's something in here about a kind of a, a glass ceiling for female teachers yes. that they couldn't become head teachers? I think that's exactly what this is saying, yes. 
at least in this early series, the only female member of staff as well. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, so. yeah. And sh- and she is this 55-year-old spinster. Of course. No man <laughs> would have her. Yeah, and, and, and she has to be this very powerful and putting her foot down kind of strong woman mm-hmm. to, to get anything done. That, that's the only way you can survive in, in an industry. I think that's all very deliberate. I think it's obviously based on reality. Well, we talked a lot about the characters. We haven't really talked about any of the actors here. So we know Joan Sanderson. We've seen her in After Henry. We saw her. Mm-hmm. Um, what else have we seen her in? I mean, she's, she's probably the most famous of the cast, I, I would guess. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think she's probably the best known, best remembered out of all these. Maybe John Alderson you could make an argument yeah. for, but he's more drama these days. Uh, John Sanderson, yes, this was her breakthrough in terms of public recognition, you know, in terms of TV and all that. She was a well-established, like I say, she was in her 50s by this point, she was well-established. Mm. But she did other kind of regular roles, but she's a very memorable guest role in Faulty Towers, for example. We, we all know about Mrs. that. Richardson. In the 80s, she had a couple of regular roles, one in Me and My Girl, and then yeah. After Henry, which pretty much mm-hmm. ran through to when she died, um, After Henry. They stopped it because she died. You did a, a forgotten sitcom of After Henry. Uh, mm. uh, our listeners can look up on our YouTube channel. But yeah, she was very, she was kind of very frail in the last series of that, wasn't she? Yes. That's interesting, though. So so she's 55 here, and we've gotten this her breakout role. But had she been working since she was 20, or just, but just yeah, made it bigger? Yeah, just more yeah. more in the world of theatre. You know, that, that right. we, but we see that so often, particularly in this era, sure. when we're looking at these earlier shows, because there wasn't that much going on before. No. And there was a little bit of a... Stigma isn't the right word, but you like theatre was legit, darling, and TV yeah. was what you did to make a bit of cash. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, you got to... You know. What about the head teacher? Who, who's the actor who plays him? Noel Howlett. Uh, again, just a very similar story there, but never... I don't know him from anything. Well, his very last ever screen appearance was in an episode of Rollover Beethoven. So, oh, really? Uh, <laughs> okay. But, but he, he, yeah, he's got... He, the didn't, he didn't fall off his bike, did he? <laughs> uh, I mean, Derek Geiler, who we did mention, uh, is, is also uh, um, perhaps not that well remembered today but was a huge part of comedy the comedy world he's old enough to have worked through the kind of the radio circuit worked with Tommy Handley on the radio and all that sort of stuff okay uh, and again had a bit of a later renaissance in terms of public recognition from this and then from doing Sykes throughout the 70s where he was one yeah. of the main characters did a lot of voice work as you can might imagine yeah. he's got a, he's got a good voice Here's a little bit of um, theatrical history for you. He is the voice of like, uh, it's like a news bulletin when the radio is played in the the mousetrap, you know, the play, the mousetrap. They just play out the audio. They're still using that? And they're still using it. So he's been in the mousetrap for 70 years now. (laughs) uh, Excellent. Still gets like sixpence a a show or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) His estate receives the royalties. (laughs) Which is, you know, that's a a curious piece of history, isn't it? And in the 80s, I bet you'll remember this, he was the voice of the skeleton on the Scotch tape adverts. (laughs) Wow. Yes. I mean, I can't place the voice, but I know exactly, I can picture the character. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's one of those guys who was just in the comedy business his whole life, you know, and uh, a really strong reputation, but uh, never got that kind of big starring role that would make him remember. I mean, probably this is what he's best remembered for. Well, I'll tell you what, let's, uh, let's just, there's a very sort of brief interstitial scene, uh, which I want to talk about because it gives us another one of these classic uh, double takes. Basically, we see mm-hmm. uh, Sharon and Maureen walking into school. So they're walking down the corridor in their skimpy dresses and they walk past Mr. Price, played by Richard Davis. And he sort of walks past, and oh, there goes, morning girls. And then does this, t- he turns around and looks, effectively looks to camera because he's looking past the camera <laughs> at these girls. And it's such a funny face. It's, it's my favorite, like, it's my favorite shot of the entire episode. <laughs> let's, let's use this opportunity to talk about him then. So Mr. Price is the most cynical and grizzled of all the teachers. He's, mm. he's, he hates the kids. He hates teaching. He hates everything about his, his life and school. One of my favourite parts of the show, uh, Richard Davis. Yeah, I, I, I love think, him. Yeah, I think Richard Davis is just a generally very good actor. I think he's he's mm-hmm. fa- he's found the pitch of the show perfectly. Yeah. Whereas I think Potter, for example, is too comedic. Uh, you know, I think the headmaster is just uh, just a pointless sort of worthless character. This uh-huh. he's he's delivering what exactly what you need from the supporting character. He's the friend of the main character. Yeah. He's comic relief. He's the cynical relief to this protagonist who's a bit too optimistic and and uh, hopeful. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the counterpoint you need to uh, Hedges. I, I totally agree. I think I think he's a re- every time he's on screen on screen, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying his grumpy, cynical nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's Hedges plus fifteen years. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, he probably was optimistic once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But Richard Davis is one of those faces. I, I instantly recognized his face, but yeah. I struggled to think where it was from. So he's kind of, I looked at his IMDb and he's sort of been in one episode of lots and lots of yeah. things. Bottle Boys, he was in. Bottle Boys was one of his other regular roles, the Robin Asquith film. But the, the thing, series. the thing that the headline on his IMDb is Zulu. He was one of the Welsh guards in Zulu. Mm. Yeah, Which is not yeah, exactly. come at all, but you know, yeah, everybody's seen this, Zulu. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, one off a bit. He's in an episode of Forty Towers as well. One episode of Yes Grave. Minister. Again, one of those people who's just really reliable. Yeah, turn up, do a nice little guest appearance with a thick Welsh accent. It's funny because he's Welsh. Yeah, and I think there it is does an element work of that. Largely, you didn't get many. You didn't get many regional accents on television. It's funny because he's Welsh, and I like it whenever he's, su- he's surprised when he exclaims it's in Welsh, and like, Lord only knows what he's saying, but because <laughs> you probably get yeah. away with all sorts of things. No one's yeah, checking. You probably that, could. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that's a very quick interstitial um, scene. And then we go to the staff room. Mm-hmm. H- Hedges is there in there with Smithy, who's the older teacher. And they're playing some card game, which I quite like this. This is basically... I, li- I like the way that the staff room is essentially a complete reflection of the classroom. So yeah. when the teachers aren't there, the classroom is a bit chaotic and they're just doing whatever the hell they like. And likewise, in the staff room, when the ki- when there's no kids around, the teachers can be themselves. Mm-hmm. And they're just playing some stupid game against the, against the wall. Yeah, when Miss Ewell isn't there. <laughs> when Miss Ewell isn't there to catch them. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk before we get into this scene, let's talk about Smithy. So Smithy's mm-hmm. like an old man and he is he is a little taken advantage of by the kids. He's the sort of old teacher that you can get away with stuff. Yeah. And he seems a little bit of a sad man. I I, I just feel sorry for Smithy. He just seems a little put upon. And he's out of his era now as well. I think that's the yeah. idea. He's not, he, he's, he went through Oxford and got a position and he, he's ended up in this working class school and he doesn't know how to handle these kids. But if you put mm-hmm. him in a, in a tweed jacket and a pipe, you know, as an, as a Don, yeah. he'd be very comfortable in his retirement years, but he would, he, he never had the skills for that, I guess. So he, he's, he's just had to, he's, he's on the scrap heap. So he's played by a guy called Eric Chitty, like just a, a, an old actor old sort of theater and television yeah. actor is that what we're talking yeah, about yeah 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 worked for 60 years and has just got credit after yeah. credit after credit but all just one episode of this one episode of that and but this again probably is major role that he'll be remembered for as so many others in the show Well, that's all we have time for this week, but please do come back next time where we will continue our over-analysis of a sitcom that is more than 50 years old. That's what we do. It sounds stupid when you put it like that, but that's what we're here for, right? If you would like to talk to us in the meantime, we are on the social medias at BritcomPod if you want to find us. You can also go to our YouTube where we have lots of other content as well as the podcast. Some things that are just video orientated rather than audio. So go and have a look at those as well. We'll be here again next week. So do make sure you come back for that and we will see you then. Bye.